0: About 2 o'clock in the morning, Thursday, July 8, 1965, Kansas City, Missouri. Dorothy Reynolds, who manages the Great Plains Motor Hotel off US Highway 71 near the airport in Kansas City, Missouri, responds to the night buzzer in the lobby. She lets a young man in to register for a room. He pulls a gun and announces that he's there to commit a robbery. He takes $256 from the cash drawer and marches Dorothy back to the manager's apartment. They pass her sleeping granddaughter. The bandit gags and ties up Dorothy and her husband, Jack, and flees into the night. The Reynolds free themselves within a few minutes and go to wake their granddaughter, Denise Sue Clinton, age nine, who is spending the night on a daybed in the living room. Little Denise is gone forever. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA, and no I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, Enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Denise Sue Clinton is born on April 17, 1956. Her parents are Betty Sue, 25, a homemaker, and Russell Clinton, 30, who manages the Auto Parts Department at a Kansas City car dealership. They've been married a couple of years, and Denise is their first child. Her little sister, Diana, joins the family three years later. In 1965, the family lives at 3038 South Scott Avenue in Independence, Missouri independence is best known as the hometown of u.s president harry truman it is a typical midwestern town essentially a suburb of kansas city missouri a neighbor later reminisces that it was mayberry usa children roamed freely from yard to yard they rode bikes everywhere and played games like tag and simon says it was a simpler time denise attended nearby three trails elementary school where denise had just finished third grade in the summer of 65. described as tall for her age Denise wore her reddish-blonde hair in a pixie cut. Meticulously neat and well-mannered, she possessed a sensitivity and wisdom beyond her years. Quote, Even as a small child, she seemed so much older than she was, unquote, said her little sister. Quote, She was the one who always did the right thing, unquote. Listeners, looking back at their pictures, the Clintons are an attractive family. The little girls are lovely. Denise, with red hair and blue eyes and freckles, both smiling broadly. Their grandparents all live fairly close. Russell's parents, Theron and Christine Clinton, farm in Calhoun County, Missouri, maybe an hour or two south of Kansas City, Betty's parents, Dorothy and Jack, Jack's given name is Chelsea, C-H-E-L-C-I-E, Oval Reynolds. So you can see why they call him Jack. They live on the other side of Kansas City and manage the Great Plains Motel, located near Kansas City Airport. In July 65, The family is just back from a two week vacation at Disneyland. Dorothy and Jack Reynolds have several grandchildren in the area and they all love to take turns spending the night at the the motel. Can't you just imagine how exciting that would be for grandchildren? There's a pool and vending machines and a restaurant maybe even glimpses of glamorous guests since the hotel is so close to the airport according to the Reynolds account of the night july 8 1965 dorothy hears the night buzzer and opens the lobby door to a man asking for a single room i don't know much about motel management and how busy things are during the night I'm not sure if Dorothy is still awake manning the front desk or if she's in bed. Jack is certainly asleep. The time is about 2 a.m., although I did see a more exact time in some of the stories of 2.20 a.m. when the buzzer sounded. The man, a clean-cut stranger, draws a revolver and says, This is a hold-up. Don't do anything stupid. Not a very creative robber. He takes two hundred and fifty-six dollars, or maybe two hundred and forty-six dollars. I've seen both in the sources, from the cash drawer, and forces Dorothy back into the apartment. Denise is sleeping on a daybed in the living room. She doesn't wake up. Some articles say Denise is sleeping on the couch. There's a blurry picture in one of the newspapers of the living room. To me, it looks like there's a door from the lobby, probably behind the front desk, that leads into the manager's apartment and opens into the living room. You can see a little kitchen on the right-hand side with a couch to the right facing the left-hand wall, where there's probably a little dinette set The bedroom and the bathroom are just beyond that. Denise wasn't sleeping on the couch, and I don't think it's a fold-out couch. It looks like a mattress about a foot tall that either pulls out from under the couch or forms the seat of the couch during the day and gets pulled out onto the floor for someone to sleep on it. Actually, it looks like one of those blow-up beds they advertise on TV, but I'm not sure if they have those in the 60s. Anyway, the pair go past Denise into the Reynolds' bedroom where Dorothy's husband, Jack, is sleeping. She wakes him up, telling him not to move because the robber has a gun. The couple is then bound and gagged by the robber. The robber tells the couple don't make any funny moves or I'll kill you. Again, a very cliched robber. They free themselves within a few minutes. Jack runs to the lobby to call police. Then Dorothy realizes Denise is not in her bed. Can you imagine how horrifying that was for her? I'm just guessing, but she probably didn't really register it at first, and ran around the apartment and the lobby and the parking lot looking for Denise, hoping she woke up and was hiding, maybe, or at least ran out of the apartment. What an awful moment for Dorothy and Jack when they realize what's happened. They call police again and notify Denise's parents, Russell and Betty Clinton, who are Not that far away in Independence, Missouri. My guess is the Reynolds probably run around all over the hotel in the meantime, waking everybody up looking for Denise, hoping against hope they'll find her close by. They don't find her. Soon, police and Denise's parents arrive, and the search begins in earnest for the bandit, and most importantly, Denise. The search for Denise is prompt, comprehensive, and covers a wide area around the motel. There's none of this, oh, she ran away stuff. That might have been an early hope. Denise woke up, saw what was happening, got scared, and hid or ran out. But... That hope fades early, early on. An APB, All Points Bulletin, immediately goes out to law enforcement with descriptions of the robber and Denise and the vehicle. The Reynolds provide a very good description of the kidnapper, quote, "...the intruder had an unblemished, fair complexion. He had blue eyes and very well-formed, handsome features." dark-haired, wearing a light blue sports shirt, and dark trousers. Average size, about six feet tall. That's 182 centimeters and 180 pounds. That's 81 kilograms or 13 stone. Unquote. A drawing of the suspect is circulated. It's a typical police sketch, could be lots of people. The hair is drawn as combed back from the suspect's forehead. Average features, however, very early, the day after the kidnapping, a picture of an actual suspect is out there. The reason for this is that the Reynolds look at a bunch of mug shots and pick out a guy they say looks very much like the kidnapper the police call this suspect either the guilty party or a look-alike there is a car described by witnesses from the bar next door which closed at 1 a.m the witnesses report seeing a light-colored sedan probably a ford in the parking lot near the lobby a little later There's another witness that police seem to take more seriously. Apparently he's a businessman staying at the motel, and he arrived back to the motel very close to the time of the robbery and kidnapping. He clearly sees the vehicle near the lobby. He gets ready for bed, goes to close his blinds, and notices the vehicle is gone. I can see why law enforcement would jump on this. If what he's saying is true and accurate, then he surely saw the getaway car. He looks at pictures of car models and picks out a 1959 or 1960 Oldsmobile four-door s- sedan, white or cream. If you look at a picture of one, it's one of those big old cars with tail fins. They're are over 2,000 cars like this registered in Kansas and Missouri? Eventually, the investigators will check out every single one of them, but to no avail. The Kansas City Police Department, the Platte County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI get involved right away. Leading the investigation is KCPD Police Chief Clarence Kelly. If that name sounds familiar, Kelly later takes over the FBI after J. Edgar Hoover's death, I think 1973 maybe, He becomes head of the FBI, and after he retires from that, Kelly founds Clarence Kelly & Associates, headquartered in Kansas City, which is still one of the leading private investigation-slash-security firms in the United States. The publicity about Denise's kidnapping is national, There are media stories all over the country about the case. Police camp out at the Clinton home in hopes there will be a call from kidnappers. There won't be. However, the phone does ring off the hook. Like many parents of missing children, Betty and Russell don't change their home phone number. Nine-year-old Denise would know her phone number. And there's always that faint hope she'll escape and call. There are plenty of phone calls, however. Denise's little sister, Diana, who was six at the time of the kidnapping, recalls the police officers practically living in their home, answering phone calls. Sometimes, most often, from well-wishers. But not always quote one man called regularly to say sexually vile things teenage pranksters called saying things like mommy daddy please help me before hanging up and laughing unquote listeners this is 50 years ago and what we like to think of as a simpler time, but human nature doesn't change much over the years. There are always cruel, stupid people. I bet archeologists have found scrolls and tablets that are prank messages. Massive searches are conducted for clues up to a 10 mile radius out around the motel. The Great Plains Motor Hotel was located near the highway that runs north-south through Kansas City, Missouri. They're about a mile south of the Kansas City Airport. The airport in Kansas City, the main one, is quite a ways north of the metro area. Now we call it Kansas City International, although its official symbol, is not KCI like you would think that belongs to Con or Cone KON Airport in East Timor the KC airport is MCI That stands for Mid-Continent International Airport, which is what it was called originally. They've petitioned whoever it is in charge to change that, but they've never been able to get it to happen. So be careful when you're booking flights. If you're careless and go for KCI, you'll end up in East Timor which is on the other side of the world, down by Australia. Of course, now that I think about it, that could be a happy accident. Anyway, the motel the Reynolds manage is near the Kansas City airport, and the Great Plains Motor Hotel is not just a motel. It's attached to a restaurant and a cocktail lounge and a disco This is the 60s. I saw an ad in the newspaper for go-go dancers, quote, "'Able to perform the Watusi and the Twist six nights a week,' unquote." Apparently, it's also a popular place with military people. It's advertised as only 20 minutes away from Fort Leavenworth, and you can sleep it off at the motel. Okay. Okay. The ad doesn't say that, but it's what I'm thinking people do. Alcohol was a big part of military social life in the 60s and 70s. Not nearly so much now. Anyway, the Great Plains sounds like a pretty busy operation. Lots of people coming and going. I found another ad. This one from 1963. Couple. Motel management and cleaning. Living quarters furnished. Seven-day week. $200 a month. Great Plains Motor Hotel. I wonder how many times Jack and Dorothy Reynolds wished they'd never seen that ad. And then... July 18th, 1965. Couple wanted. Living quarters furnished. Experienced. $300 a month salary. Complete operation of motel. One mile south of Mid-Continent Airport. Great Plains Motor Hotel. So, In the newspapers, the the motel location is listed as on Highway 71. I tried to figure out exactly where it was, but I never could find an exact address. I think it was probably in the area where the hotels are now by the airport. If you know the area, north of Tiffany Springs, west of... no east of Interstate 29, which used to be called Highway 71. Maybe it still is. It looks like the one turned into the other. Even today, that's not a very populated area. Just hotels and convenience stores, maybe a gas station or two. July 8, 1965 is a Thursday night, not as busy as maybe a Friday or Saturday would be for the cocktail lounge and disco, but there would still likely be flight crews and business travelers coming and going, maybe not that late at night, though. There are a few pictures of the motel in the newspapers. It reminds me of the upstate New York motels Don Draper goes to in Mad Men. Back in the sixties, motel robberies are not uncommon. They're kind of an easy target if you think about it. You could get in late at night when the manager's alone, no security cameras back then. The location likely is near a major highway, so get in, get out fast. You probably wouldn't get much cash Although credit cards weren't used nearly as much in the 60s as they are now, but you might score some valuables from the motel safe. Although our guy apparently only took cash. Well, and something priceless, Denise. I'll save you Googling. $250 in 1965 is about $2,100 U.S., in today's money. So not a bad haul, really. Unfortunately, people are robbed and murdered all the time for that kind of money. The search for clues was intense, as I said, over a 10-mile radius around the motel. People on horses, bloodhounds, helicopters, the military, they did find things including the body of a woman who had committed suicide in a field in Platte County, but nothing that could be linked to Denise. There was a good description of what Denise was wearing when she's taken in the newspapers at the time, a blue and white checked homemade moo-moo that she wore as a nightgown, a purple plastic ring from a vending machine and a Timex watch with a black band. The law enforcement theory of the crime is an impulse crime. Quote, in analyzing the circumstances, the primary motive appears to have been robbery. The taking of Denise must have been on impulse, Unquote. Fingerprints are found at the scene Interestingly, they're found by Detective Tom Thomas, who will become the Platte County Sheriff in just a few years. He will be one of the leading investigators on this case for many years. According to the first news reports, quote, detectives recovered an empty spool of one inch tape from the couch on which Denise was sleeping. It contained a palm print and part fingerprint. They also recovered several short pieces of tape from the grandparents' bedroom." It doesn't sound like this is the kind of fingerprint that's good enough to take now and put through databases. My sense is that the fingerprint evidence is mainly used to eliminate suspects. Law enforcement quickly finds suspects. The best early suspect is Robert Lee Hayes, 32, who is wanted on a federal warrant for unlawful flight from prosecution. Hayes is wanted for a string of burglaries in Topeka, Kansas. When Dorothy and Jack Reynolds are shown his mugshot, they both agree that he's the closest thing they've seen to the robber. His pictures are all over the media more so really than the police sketch. In a way that makes sense, it's easier to identify somebody from a photograph than a sketch. Hayes clearly has mental issues. He's described as an epileptic psychotic. Scary sounding. It's not very clear what his issues are. At 32, he's the right age to have been in the Korean War. So could be he's suffering the after effects of war? Not really sure, just speculating. When he's caught, there's a picture of him in the newspapers knocking down a TV cameraman. Anyway, for years, he's in and out of state mental institutions in St. Joseph and Nevada, Missouri. Those are both in the Kansas City area, ways north He's married to Thelma and has children. It's reported that his wife, at least at some point, has him committed because she's concerned about her safety and that of her children. However, she is instrumental in getting him released, probably in 63 or 64. In the summer of 65, he's on the run from the burglary charges, and Thelma is reportedly with him. Their children are staying down in the Ozarks with family. There is speculation that Robert and Thelma possibly committed the robbery and took Denise with them for some reason. That idea actually gives a little comfort to Russell and Betty, that Denise might be with a woman who would presumably care for her. It will be a year later before Hayes is apprehended in Oklahoma City and taken to Topeka, Kansas to face charges. In 1966, Dorothy and Jack Reynolds go to Topeka to take a good look at him. They've done this several times with other men in the year since the kidnapping and eliminated those suspects. They both immediately agree that Hayes looks a lot like the kidnapper, but he not the guy. And I think by now he's maybe been eliminated based on the fingerprint or whatever the police have been able to find out about his movement since the kidnapping. Looking at the newspaper reports from 65 and 66 and 67, There's no real progress in the investigation. Most of the stories are about people raising money for the reward, which I saw reports saying might have gotten as large as $20,000. That's huge, actually, about $150,000 in today's money. They especially like the stories about children, like Denise's little brownie troop, and just girls and other kids who want to help. There's a tragic footnote to these stories about the reward. On August 19, 1965, just a few weeks after Denise is taken, Russell Clinton's father Theron donates $5,000 to the reward fund. Then he dies 10 days later. Listeners, it's so sad that the family victims of kidnappings and murders so often seem to endure even more heartache than what came with the original crime. Then over two years after the kidnapping, everyone's worst fears are realized. In September 1967, it is announced that skeletal remains have been found. Using dental records, the FBI verifies the remains to be those of Denise Sue Clinton. Quote Two cowboys outriding found the bones in an area of pine forest outside Sundance, Wyoming. The area is near the black rock column called Devil's Tower the bones were lying on the ground on the morse hauber ranch small fragments of knitted fabric possibly the remains of underclothing were found with the bones a section of rope tied into two loops was found near them also nearby was a child's wristwatch unquote. this report goes on to describe the location as quote, not far from a lightly-traveled Forest Service highway." In some other reports, it says, two miles from the road. Two miles is a long way to carry a body, even that of a child. The article also quotes local law enforcement saying they could not identify any unusual crime activity in that area from the summer of 1965, Very interestingly, the story also says Denise is, quote, likely alive when taken across state lines, unquote. That makes the kidnapping a federal crime and eligible for the death penalty. Listeners, I wonder why they say that. I don't think you can estimate the time of death that closely from skeletal remains that have been in the elements for two years. There's never a cause of death reported. It's possible they know that, like if it was a stabbing or shooting, or sometimes they can tell strangulation even on a skeleton. Or maybe they don't know. If they know, it's possible they're holding back that information. That's not unusual, even today. If I had to guess, I'd say shooting, because we know there was a gun involved in the robbery. But who knows? Listeners, I'm sorry to be so vague. I know it's frustrating for amateur sleuths, but we don't know everything detectives know. About where the remains are found, if Devil's Tower sounds familiar, It's pretty famous. It's the National Monument featured in the 1977 Steven Spielberg blockbuster movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The Devil's Tower is what Richard Dreyfuss's character keeps obsessing over. There's a scene I recall where he tries to model it in mashed potatoes and just drives his wife crazy. Spoiler alert. It's where the aliens land. That's Devil's Tower. To drive there from Kansas City takes about 13 hours today. It's 800 miles, 1,300 kilometers. It would be longer back in the 60s. Every place in Wyoming is pretty remote. The whole state really is a good place to dump a body, Devil's Tower is really out there. The nearest town I've ever heard of is Sundance, Wyoming, which is 40 miles away. The area is the northeast corner of Wyoming between Gillette, Wyoming, and Rapid City, South Dakota. There's really nothing out there. But it's a national park, so it's possible the kidnapper headed up there and maybe camped out. Maybe he was headed for Canada. In 1965, dodging the draft by fleeing to Canada was a thing. If you look at a map today, Devil's Tower isn't far off Interstate 90. If you're not from the States, the east to west major highways in the continental United States are Interstates 10, 20, 30, up to 90, going south to north. I-70, for example, goes right through the middle of Kansas. I-80 goes through Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming. I-90 starts in Boston and goes all the way to Seattle. But I don't think it's there in 1965. Online it says Interstate 90 was completed in South Dakota in 1978. In Wyoming, not till 1985 but there are lots of famous national parks in that area. So I think there would be at least decent highways leading to the park where Devil's Tower is. And like I said, it's a great place to dispose of a small girl's body. After Denise's remains are found, giving our story its tragic ending, There's nothing more of substance until 1970. On the 20th of August, 1970, newspapers report the truly disturbing story told by a 25-year-old inmate at a state penitentiary. All we ever know about the informant is that he is facing long prison terms in Louisiana and Missouri and wants to bargain with his information. Listeners, this really is a dreadful, twisted story. I'll read you the bullet points from the news story as fast as I can. What this guy tells law enforcement is not something you want to dwell on. Two men both intoxicated, were riding around Platt County early the morning of July 8th, 1965. One of the men passed out in the back of the car. At the same time, the driver decided he would rob the Great Plains Motel. He bound Denise's grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Chelsea Reynolds, the managers of the motel, 20 miles northwest of downtown Kansas City, and took $256.00. He also took Denise. During the next two days, Denise was held in a barn in Platts County. One of the men was sentenced in 1968 to five years on a charge of molesting a nine-year-old girl. During the two days Denise was held in the barn, she was subject to continuous sexual assaults. On July 10, the men decided the girl could identify them. She was beaten and finally chloroformed, which one of the men had at the barn to destroy an ailing dog, was used. The chloroform killed the girl. They buried the child near the barn. In the next six months, the man who robbed the motel and took Denise left Platte County. The other man, hearing in early 1966 that some land would be cleared near the barn where Denise was buried 10 inches below the surface, told a friend, in this case the 25-year-old informant, that he needed to help. He needed help to dig up the body. In early February, the two take the body away. The body was wrapped in a tarp bound with wire. The fourth man took the body to Wyoming. He is being sought by law enforcement officials for a statement about his role in moving the body to near Devil's Tower Monument, near Sundance. Apparently no attempt to bury the body was made. Okay, what about this story? It's horrifying. It's also quite detailed. Even so, my initial reaction is it's this creep, sick fantasy. But there might be elements of truth in it. To me, it sounds like he's a pedophile from the area. He could have heard things. So I guess it's wild speculation time. Sadly, That's all there is to do with this case. the story of two men kidnapping Denise and holding her, and later having the body taken out to Wyoming. For me, that's too many people involved. Two guys are riding around drunk, one passes out in the back seat, the other guy, on the spur of the moment, decides to commit a robbery, with a drunk, in the back of his car, that Sounds so unlikely. Then the robber sees Denise asleep, just happens to, and again, on the spur of the moment, kidnaps her and puts her in the car with his drunk friend and speeds off. And the chloroform just happens to be in the barn. Okay, possible, but Far-fetched, in my opinion. Now, we do have to consider this guy who's telling the story may be a lot more involved than what he's saying. And he's making stuff up to make things sound not as planned out as maybe they were. Not sure. Okay, then, for some reason, The two murderers enlist the help of two more people. How could they be sure nobody would talk? There's a big reward in this case. And by the way, dear listeners, unsolicited advice time if anybody asks you to help dispose of a body, don't do it. Please go right to the police. Of course, that's not what's gumbag criminals do, so it's possible in that world. There could be a tight-knit cabal of pedophiles in the Kansas City area. I wouldn't doubt it. They would all know each other, and more importantly, things about crimes the others have committed, so maybe nobody would talk. But this guy's talking. Why take the chance? The only good reason I can think of is that you're in jail. If the murderers are in jail, they would need somebody to help them. Then why, why Wyoming? Because it's far, far away and nobody lives there? I'm sorry, people in Wyoming, people do live there, but not very many and I think the people who live in Wyoming like that, the fact that hardly anybody else lives there. I think I would like that. Maybe the fourth guy is a truck driver who travels that way a lot. What about the way the body is found? This made the police pretty skeptical about this story. The convict's story is the body was taken to Wyoming, wrapped in a tarp and wire, but that's not how the skeleton is found. It's right out in the open. The bones are just lying out there. So whoever left Denise's body out there would have to unwrap it if the story's true that's pretty terrible to picture, although I wouldn't put it past a low-life subhuman who blithely dumps the body of a nine-year-old girl in the wilderness. The reason to do that would be to make it harder to find the remains, and you could also hope that scavengers would scatter the remains. All that said, I still really think the whole story is too convoluted you know how liars often put too many details into their stories they embellish that's what i think this guy is doing he's sitting in prison for a long time with a long time to go so he has plenty of time to just think up stuff to lie about it's possible the story I mean, maybe law enforcement did believe him and just never said anything because there was no way to prove it, and the bad guys were already in jail for life. I guess I can see that, but wouldn't it come out at some point during 50 years since the kidnapping? So listeners, it's my considered opinion and wishful thinking that the story is not true. Listeners, it's also my fervent hope that this is not what happened. It's every parent's worst nightmare. Can I envision some miraculous resolution to the case? A deathbed confession. The killer or killers could still be with us in their 70s or 80s probably an attack of conscience right before the murderer meets his maker i think that happens although i couldn't think of an example so i googled and there are documented cases out there The first website I came to was 15 people who confessed terrible crimes on their deathbeds by Ellie Leonard at the website therichest.com. An interesting rabbit hole for true crime fans. I glanced through the list of 15 and I don't think they're all verified. But the first one is, here's the story of Geraldine Kelly. Jerry was known for being a pretty tough woman. She had several attack dogs and had a penchant for tattoos and snakes. Even so, no one would have expected the startling revelation she made to her daughter while in the final stages of her cancer in 2004. For years, Jerry's children, who had been estranged from their mother since their early teens, had believed exactly what she had always told them. Their father and Jerry's husband, John T. Kelly, had been killed in a tragic car accident. In reality, the truth was, in fact, much more sinister Geraldine had actually shot him in the head at some point during the early 90s and hid his body in a freezer, which she had then kept in a storage facility. The police recovered the body and were able to identify him by his well-preserved physical appearance as well as his tattoos. So, a good confession could turn up. Plus, we all know murderers seem to have trouble lowering up and shutting up. So maybe somebody told someone about what happened to Denise. Maybe somebody like that will decide to finally clear their conscience. Of course, it would be hard to verify what they say unless they give some detail that law enforcement knows about the case that we don't. Sometimes murderers keep souvenirs. There was a case of a wife or maybe a daughter of a man finding a distinctive piece of jewelry in the guy's stuff after he died. It was thought the jewelry might belong to a murder victim. Sorry, listeners, I can't remember enough about that case to find it for you. But in Denise's case, the only thing we know of that might be something like that is her little plastic purple ring. But maybe there's something else the police are holding back. Of course, no one will ever report it because nobody knows about it. So if you happen to find a little plastic girl's ring when you're going through old Uncle Jim's stuff, you might give the police a call, although I don't know how they'd ever tie it to Denise for sure. You know, I always dream of touch DNA As far as what was found in Wyoming, I'm thinking that was in the elements over two years, so no hope there. But it's possible that the tape used to bind Dorothy and Jack might have something on it, if it was properly handled and preserved, which I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Deputy Tom Thomas dusted it for prints, after all. In 1965, he wouldn't know to swab the roll of tape for DNA and carefully preserve it. Realistically, that roll of adhesive tape probably doesn't even exist anymore. I did get a little off track thinking about the tape and how Dorothy and Jack were tied up. In 2019, I'm seeing duct tape, like every self-respecting serial killer has in his murder kit. But then I wondered if there was such a thing in 1965. So I googled it. Duct tape has a more interesting story than you might think. This is from a website, www.thoughtco.com. During the Second World War, U.S. troops in the heat of battle had a strangely impractical way of reloading their weapons. Cartridges used for grenade launchers was one example. Boxed, sealed with wax, and taped over to protect them from moisture. Soldiers would need to pull on a tab to peel off the paper tape and break the seal. Sure, it worked... Except when it didn't, soldiers were left scrambling to pry the boxes open. Vesta Stout had been working at a factory packing and inspecting these cartridges when she got to thinking that there had to be a better way. She also happened to be a mother of two sons serving in the Navy and was particularly perturbed that their lives and countless others were left to such chance. Concerned for the welfare of sons, she discussed with her supervisors an idea she had to fabricate a tape made from strong, water-resistant cloth. And when nothing came of her efforts, she penned a letter to then-President Franklin Roosevelt detailing her proposal, which included a hand-sketched diagram probably it's at the Smithsonian or, or maybe in some company's museum, and close closing by making a plea to his conscience. Quote, we can't let them down by giving them a box of cartridges that takes a minute or two to open, enabling the enemy to take lives that might be saved had the box been taped with strong tape that can be opened in a split second. Please, Mr. President, do something about it about this at once, not tomorrow or soon, but now. Fortuitously enough, Roosevelt passed Stout's recommendation on to military officials, and in two weeks' time she received notice that her suggestion is being considered, and not too long after was informed that her proposal had been approved. The letter also commended her idea and said it was of exceptional merit. Before long, Johnson & Johnson, which specialized in medical supplies, was assigned and developed a sturdy cloth tape with a strong adhesive that would come to be known as Duck tape, D-U-C-K, which garnered the company an Army-Navy E Award, an honor given out as a distinction of excellence in the production of war equipment. While Johnson & Johnson was officially credited with the invention of duct tape, it's a concerned mother who will be remembered as the mother of duct tape. So is it duck, D-U-C-K, or duct, D-U-C-T, tape? Well, according to Johnson & Johnson, the original green, not silver tape, was called duct tape by G.I.s because water just rolled off it like off a duck's back. But then, after the war, businesses started using it to seal off heating ducts, hence duct tape. Essentially, either one is fine. Okay, back to the case. Could the tape used by the robber be duct tape? It's around... In 1965 but i don't think so the most detailed description in the newspaper is one inch adhesive tape i think that's white medical tape the strong kind if it was duct tape or packing tape or scotch tape i think they would have said so but maybe not and maybe it's not even really that important did the robber bring it with him or was it from the desk or the apartment we just don't know it would also be interesting, at least to me, to find out if there are any other crimes in the area when the perpetrator used that same kind of tape, but we can only speculate. Speaking of speculation, there are threads about Denise's case on Reddit and Web, slu- web sluice. They have a lot of the same speculation I came up with. I'd like to address first the post speculating that Dorothy and Jack made up the story about the robbery to cover up what really happened to Denise, which was death due to neglect or even child abuse at the hands of possibly the parents or the grandparents. Listeners, true crime fans, myself included, Always think the worst of everybody, especially the victim's family, and sadly, we're too often right about that. But in this case, in my opinion, absolutely not a chance. Law enforcement would have been all over that if there were even an inkling. There are never rumors of violence in the Clinton family, and it's been over 50 years. If you read what Denise's neighbors and friends say, Russell and Betty Clinton are Ward and June Cleaver with Denise and Diana instead of Wally and the Beave. Betty's parents, Dorothy and Jack, are religious, hardworking, and highly respected. And it's a very close-knit family. The grandchildren in the area, take turns spending the night at Grandma and Grandpa's motel. If there's any violence going on, it would come out. What about an accident? Maybe, like, I don't know, Denise drowning in the pool? But why'd it go to all that trouble to cover it up? Plus, in all these scenarios, Denise's remains have to end up 800 miles 1,300 kilometers away, over 13 hours' drive. That's beyond unlikely. That speculation is just too wild, even for me. So the Reynolds absolutely told the police exactly what happened to the very best of their recollection. There was a robbery, and Denise was kidnapped by the robber. What about that first suspect, Robert Lee Hayes? Well, he was definitively cleared of any involvement. I don't put a lot of stock in eyewitnesses, but even discounting what the Reynolds say about him not being the guy, the police clearly stated in the press that it wasn't possible for him to have committed the robbery or the kidnapping. It is possible, though, that a man and woman are involved, just not Thelma and Robert. Like, the robber's wife desperately wants a daughter, so he takes Denise home. Maybe home is Wyoming, where she's treated kindly, but sadly dies from natural causes or an accident. Okay, That's nice to think about, but it didn't happen. So what do I really think? Well, one plausible idea goes something like this. The robber has no idea Denise is there. After he's tied up her grandparents, Denise sits up in bed and sees the robber just as he's walking out. Momentarily, she freezes and doesn't scream. So the grandparents don't hear anything and don't suspect at all that she's been taken. Unfortunately, the robber is someone Denise recognizes. I don't know, the janitor at her school or the uncle of one of her friends, something like that. He panics puts his hand over her mouth, points the gun at her, and makes her get in the car. He's freaking out and just starts driving as fast as he can, trying to get as far away from the area as possible. Maybe he's not completely evil, so it takes him a while to decide he has to kill her. Otherwise, she'll identify him. Along the way, or maybe even as far away as where the remains are found he kills Denise personally I prefer to think when she's asleep and leaves her body in Wyoming then he realizes it will look suspicious if he doesn't go back to Kansas City so if he has a job he calls in sick to work gets some sleep drives back and I don't know goes on with his life that's possible It's also possible he was interviewed by the police and cleared because his fingerprint didn't match the one on the tape, which in reality was just a stray print and not the robbers. There's some coincidence there, but I don't think any of that is too much of a stretch. A similar theory is that the robber is a drifter, Or somebody who travels a lot. He sees Denise either before or after he's tied up Dorothy and Jack. He impulsively decides to kidnap Denise for ransom, or he's a pedophile. I don't know the statistics on how likely it is that a motel robber is also a pedophile, but it's certainly possible. If it's an impulsive kidnapping, He could get cold feet about that. Kidnappers get the death penalty in the United States, after all. At least the ones we know about. Um, I've often wondered how many kidnappings there are with the family or whoever not calling the FBI. They just pay the ransom, the victim gets released, and we never hear about it. Or maybe there's an accomplice who's not on board with the kidnapping. Or they are planning to ask for a ransom, but Denise tries to escape or something and gets killed. (sighs) Listeners, whatever I come up with, I still have to stretch to explain Wyoming. It seems like it would be so much better to dispose of the body quickly in a river, the Missouri rivers right there, or a field, or a ditch, or just get out of town as fast as you can. Having Denise in your car, dead or alive, is very risky, even if you're driving through the middle of nowhere. Although it is said That she was an obedient little girl. There might have been a ruse involved to keep her quiet. And there is a gun. Concealing the body and then moving it is really problematic to me. Although it's possible something like finding out the place where you hid the body is going to be dug up. That could explain that. If our guy or guys are pedophiles, that would explain why Denise might be kept alive, at least during much of the drive to Wyoming. These aren't bad theories, although I admit I have to stretch my mind around the idea that kidnapping Denise is just a part of a robbery gone wrong. That is so random and senseless and it's hard to accept that. However, crime is often random and criminals are often stupid and sloppy. It does appear that detectives think something like that is what happened. There is one other thought I'll throw out there. How likely is it that the primary crime was to kidnap Denise. The robbery was sort of a cover for that. In that scenario, two people make some sense. One does the robbery while the other one kidnaps Denise. Then the person taking Denise could actually be somebody the Reynolds know. If that's the case, He could know for sure that Denise, or possibly another granddaughter, will be spending the night. She could wake up while you're trying to take her out of the bed, recognize you and scream or something, but I don't think that's too much of a risk. She's only nine years old. It's two in the morning. I've carried sleeping children around many times without waking them up. Or if he gets fancy, he could bring chloroform. That seems to work in the movies. I'm not so sure about real life, but it's something to think about. This idea takes the coincidences out, but it does seem really elaborate, and another person has to be involved. However, Suppose the guy has a big obsession about Denise. It's possible this could seem like a good plan to somebody like that. I have one other idea that puts a little coincidence in, but not too much. The kidnapper is a pedophile. I don't think he's staying at the motel or working in the motel-restaurant-bar complex, If that were the case, I think he'd be recognized. But for whatever reason, maybe he just likes to watch children at the motel swimming pool. He's there. Although it's really hot in July in Kansas City to be sitting in your car watching kids, plus not being noticed. But it stays light out until really late in July, so people might be out in the pool You could pull up like you're going to the restaurant or the bar and smoke a cigarette in the 60s that would not be remarkable i can see the clintons pulling up to drop denise off the pedophile notices she's spending the night he sees the managers are in their 60s which i refuse to call elderly so he comes up with a plan to pretty safely kidnap a young girl and even make some money while he's doing it. After all, somebody did do that and get away with it. Okay, to sum things up, much as I hate thinking about it, I think a pedophile murdered Denise. Possibly someone known to her or her family or an acquaintance more likely not. Just because I don't like coincidences, it doesn't mean they don't happen all the time. So really, any of the ideas out there are valid. If you have any ideas, please email me or comment on the website. I love talking about true crime with people. Unfortunately, this is a very cold case. Nothing new, at least that the public knows, has surfaced in 50 years. The original investigators and the guilty parties are likely all dead. The only thing I'll say for sure about the case is that in my heart, which breaks over this case, I don't think it will ever be solved. There is a posting for Denise on findagrave.com, The picture of her in her little brownie uniform is out there. Both her parents and all the grandparents are at Find a Grave, too. Her dad died in 1985 and her mom in 2006, never knowing what really happened to their little girl. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Her little sister, Diana, was interviewed in the Kansas City Star for their 50th anniversary article about the case. It's a very good article. The reporter is one of my favorites, Tony Rizzo, R-I-Z-Z-O. For this episode, I mostly used area newspaper articles from the 60s and, of course, Googled and wikied and even made a donation to wiki and went through genealogy sites like ancestry.com the links are in the show notes the case is still open if by some chance you know anything about it please call the kansas city missouri cold case squad at 816 234 5136 i'll put that number in the show notes too okay I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders@gmail.com at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website. Prison City Murders. Sorry, it's prisoncitymurders.blueberry, without the E's, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot net. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.